it started as a very small plant, quite insignificant in a way. But after a period of time, it grew into the biggest gooseberry bush that I recall ever seeing. And so, um, with this gooseberry bush, we had, because of its size, we had real anticipation and excitement about the uh, fruit we were going to get when the season came. And when the season came, we went out and searched among the branches and the leaves for gooseberries. Couldn't find any. There was this massive growth, but no fruit. And we expect that when there is growth and something is alive and doing well, it should produce fruit. And it was so that Paul uses this same illustration when he talks about the growth of the gospel. We've been over this series uh, during the month of January as we start out in a new year thinking about growing. We thought of Jesus growing up in his family. We thought last week of the importance of the word of God in enabling us to grow. This week we're thinking in, in a broader sense of the gospel, the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul, writing to the Colossians and referring to what has happened there, speaks to them of the fact that the gospel was growing and it was fruitful in verse 6 of Colossians 1. The two things going together. And you might recall that very often in Jesus' stories and parables, he referred to growth and fruit coming together, the parable of the sower of the seed, Um, all kinds of examples. Psalm 1, uh, which is a lovely example there of a tree planted by the rivers, which is fruitful in its season. And so Paul sees that the gospel is something which not only has the characteristics of growth, but also of fruitfulness. Colossians 1 and verse 6. So, let's look briefly at the nature of the gospel. What is it? Then it's growth and it's fruit. What is the nature of the gospel? What do we mean by that? Well, Paul sets out what the gospel is as it was received by the folk in Colossae. He says that there were three things that happened there. First of all, he said, he rejoices in their faith in Christ. And that's at the heart of the gospel. The message that God has brought to his creation is first of all in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the gospel is about appreciation of Christ, recognizing who he is, as Paul writes to the Romans, for if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
and it is a recognition of the person and work of Christ that is at the heart of the gospel. But then there was something else that he recognized, that as a result of that, their love for Christ had expressed in in a wider love. There was a demonstration of what faith in Christ had meant, and there was a love, he says, for all. A love for all. And so there is, in fact, very much here, a very much a supernatural love. We tend to love the people we like, the people who are close to us, the people sometimes not only that we like, but that are like us, because we think if they're like us, they must be good people anyway. So we tend to like them. And, and our love tends to be conscripted in that sense. But the gospel means that love is to be extended beyond. And so Jesus made this very revolutionary statement. He said, love your enemies. Now that, that's an unnatural thing to do. It's not the kind of ordinary thing. But it is at the heart of the gospel. Because as John writes in his letter, God is love. And love, therefore, is to be expressed by those who come to know God. So the Lord Jesus says, I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. How are Christians going to be known? Because they love one another. They love in the broadest sense. But it's interesting that Paul then goes on to say that this springs from their hope for heaven. It's not that these things brought about heaven, but it was the very fact that thinking about heaven, thinking about what God is planning and is working towards and is going to do in the future is that which motivated their faith and their love. I wonder how often that the thought of what God is working towards doing in recreating and bringing about a new heaven and a new earth, I wonder how often we think about it, how often we get excited about it. You say, well, that's typical. You're getting old. Of course, you're, you're going to think about things like that. But, but it's something which, which ought to motivate all of us, the reality of that. Just last week, I had uh, a retiree's lunch. And that means meeting up with some of my colleagues and their wives usually come. And I sat down uh, next to the wife of one of my colleagues, who I don't really know very well at all, but thing you do at lunchtime is have a conversation with people, so one tries to have a conversation. I don't know how on earth we got onto the subject, but we got onto the subject of people being ill. I suppose it was because a number of our colleagues were getting older and getting iller, if one could put that uh, like that. And she ended up by saying an interesting phrase. She said, life's not fair, is it? 
And I agreed with her. I said, oh, life isn't fair. I referred to the fact that we had a son die when he was 34, and a grandson die when he was 20 months. You say, life's not fair, is it? And we all, in many ways, have experienced these hardships. And what seems like an unfair situation. I said, no, it's not. I said, but, you know, I believe that this is not only how things were not meant to be, but one day they're going to be better. That one day the unfairness will be set aside. And I mentioned the fact that though my son had got AIDS because of his haemophilia treatment, he was not bitter. And I remember Philip saying one day, he referred to the verse in Genesis, shall not the God of all the earth do right? And one day, he will do right. That is going to happen. Now we ought to be excited about that. Thrilled with the prospect that when we look around and see the world as it is, with the realization that this was never God's intention for it to be like this, and that God is working to put it right, and one day it will be put right. And that, says Paul, that very conviction is a motivation for a commitment to Christ and for expressing love. And so that was the nature of the gospel. But then he talked about the growth. How is it coming about? It was, Paul said, that they heard the word of truth. They heard the word of truth. I heard some time ago, I think I may have mentioned this, I'm sure I have mentioned some, forgive me if I've said it to uh, you before. It's just, just as an aside, people talk about memory, uh, the quirks of memory. They say, isn't it amazing how you can remember these stories, but you can't remember how often you told them to people? <laughs> so forgive me if you've heard this, but some of you may not. There was an archbishop who was in a chat show in America and there was an atheist with him. And at one stage, the atheist got very worked up and said, you know, there's one thing I can't stand about you Christians is your arrogance and, and you saying there's only one way to God. And the interviewer turned to the archbishop, expecting an answer, wondered how he was going to answer it. And he paused and then just very gently said, no, he said, uh, I've never said there's only one way to God. I've simply repeated what God said. And you see, that's what we're about. That's what the gospel is. It's not expressing our views on the future. It's not expressing our views on how we should live. It is taking what God has said, passing it on. It's hearing, not from us, but hearing from God, the Word of God, the emphasis that we had last week on the importance of the Scripture. It comes from hearing the Word. 
God has chosen to express himself. He has spoken. He has told us about ourselves. He has told us about himself. He has told us what he is doing. He has told us what he is going to do. And we need to hear the word that God has spoken. And then it's accepting the grace that God has given. Another story, which again, my wife will tell me off for repeating these things, but some of you may not have heard it. When I was doing my national service, I had this friend who sat at the end of his bed, tying himself up in knots in yoga. I I won't demonstrate the lotus position to you, because I can't get my leg round the back of my neck. But, But he did this in all sincerity, talking to him, he, he was doing this in all sincerity because he wanted to be acceptable to God. We spoke about the cross and he said, oh, the cross, that, that's unfair. You know, it's unfair that, that somebody else should, should suffer for my, my wrongdoing. I, I, I think I've got to do something about it. But you see, at the heart of the gospel is accepting the reality of the cross. As Paul writes to the Corinthians, the cross is foolishness to some, and it's an offence to others. It's very true, because what it means is coming in repentance, saying to God, not only have I done wrong, but I can't actually do anything about it, and I need you, and I accept what you have done. I accept the reality of what Christ did on the cross. And that's how the gospel grows, by folk doing that. And so it is, again, as Paul wrote to the Romans, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one whom they've not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? They need to hear and need to accept the growth, the word of God. And of course, Paul was rejoicing that Epaphras had been and told them about Christ. Paul himself had not been able to go, but Epaphras had been. How does it grow? reaching the people that God has chosen. And Paul says the gospel has grown over all the world. And we need again to recognize that the gospel is not just for me. The gospel is for all. God so loved the world, says John, writes John. We read, God is not willing that any should perish. The word to the disciples recorded at the end of Matthew, go and make disciples of all nations. And so it is that the gospel grows because of its relevance around the world. Aren't the times when you think, oh, I wish 
got to be more specific about how we organise church in Abbeydale so we didn't have these debates about things. We knew exactly what it was we were going to do. It was all written down. I've thought that sometimes. Then I've just wondered, you know, if God had done that for us in Abbeydale in 2012, would it have been relevant 500 years ago? Would it be relevant in the middle of the African jungle? Would it be relevant in Japan? I think one of the great glories of the gospel, of the word of God, is that it's relevant throughout all ages and globally. Wherever you go, the Bible is relevant. In deepest Africa, in the very different culture of Japan, people still take the Bible and present it as the word of God. It's relevant and it grows reaching the people. The statistics are, are, are very difficult to, to get at, and, and I think, although they may indicate certain things, we, yeah, it's like people say there are lies, damn lies, and there are statistics, but uh, okay, but they are helpful. A statistic. In AD 100, there were 360 non-Christians for every believer. Today, the ratio is less than seven. And it's calculated that out of the close to seven billion people in the world today, one-third are Christians. About 500 Muslims come to faith in Christ every month in Iran. Iran, where there's such persecution, burning of churches, killing of Christians, yet it's indicated that there's hundreds a month coming to Christ. Again, I don't know how people work these statistics, but it says every day 20,000 Africans come to Christ. That's staggering, isn't it? But perhaps almost more staggering, and again, more difficult quite to understand, in, in China, it's estimated that now there are 60 to 80 million Christians. That's, that's the same population as the UK. That number now of Christians. And it's suggested that there may be 10 to 25,000 converts a day. I mean, these kind of figures you... Difficult to to take on board. But the reality is the gospel is growing. We look around us and we're concerned about it. Yeah, uh, it was David Pawson was was asked, he was a full-time teacher, and someone he was saying asked him, when they asked him what he did, he said he was a minister in the church. And they said, oh dear, it must be a hard job working for a dying organization. And David Pawson said, I wouldn't know, he said. I wouldn't know. He said, I'm I'm in a growing organization. The church is growing. The gospel is growing. We may not see it immediately around it, but we should be encouraged by the reality of what God is doing on a global basis. And so there's this wonderful thing that is happening. It is based on hearing the word 
accepting the grace of God, but reaching out. That's why it's important what we were doing this morning, have our world vision slot, to give us a bigger vision of what's going on. It's good to have people like David Turner with us, thinking about what's going on in Africa and, and other places. These give us a wider vision and encourage us in that. But Paul talks about not only the growth that there was, but the fruit. And he rejoiced in the reality of the fact that not only had they accepted the word, but this had changed their lives. They were transformed. And he goes on then, in in the latter part of the passage we read, is a prayer by Paul to see the development of that fruit and the way he goes on looking at it. He says it is to result in being filled with the knowledge of God's will. Now, when we think about knowing God's will, we think about, well, what job should I accept or what girl should I marry or things like that. Paul says, no, yes, they're part of God's will, certainly, But God's will is much bigger than that. It is the knowledge of what it is that God really wants to happen with our lives. And it comes through spiritual wisdom and understanding, very much through our understanding of the Word of God. So what is it? It's Paul's prayer. And it's something for us to look at in our home groups during the coming week, because there isn't time to go through, because I'm going to do something which everybody tells you you shouldn't do, and that's put up too many words on the screen. But, but just so that you can see the, the, the breadth of Paul's prayer for these people, the fruit of the gospel, he prays, first of all, he says, that you may live a life that is worthy of God. He's, just think, he said for a moment, just think who you are. You are the children of God. You're in the family of God. Now you better live like that family. You have the family's honor at stake in the way in which you live. When I was doing my national service, one one of the chaps who was in the Christian Union, he swore one day. Now, any of you who know anything about the services know that swearing is is kind of unusual if you use an ordinary word, let alone a swear word. But they'd spotted the fact he swore once. I said, did you hear Colin? You see, they didn't expect it. The world around maybe has higher standards for you as a Christian than you have yourself. And we need to be living a life that is worthy of the Lord. And and Paul says, I want you to live a life that pleases God. If you love me, says Jesus, you'll keep my commandments. You see, this isn't a matter of legalistic do's and don'ts. This is a motivation to please God in the way in which I live, the way I talk to people, the way I act with them. I want to please God. Live a life that works for God. 
Paul writing to the Ephesians says, we are the workmanship of Christ Jesus created for good works. Wonderful praying for the practical ministry team this morning. People who put out the chairs and do all these kinds of things. Good works. Practical things that we need to be doing. Part of what we're thinking about very much for being in the community. Part of what the pastoral team and CAF and CAP and things are about is doing good works, being involved with people, doing them good. Paul prays, yes, let this be one of the fruit of the gospel in your life. Living a life that grows in the knowledge of God. Again, we come back to the scriptures. Reading the word of God. Getting to know God. Peter finishes his second letter. He says, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Get to know him better. Get to know him better. It was um, Derek Tidball in his um, commentary on Colossians who talked in terms of what it meant to have this intimate companionship with Jesus so that he impacts upon every aspect of our lives. That's what it means to get to know him better, not just to know about him but to know him, to walk with him. How do you get to know anyone? You have to spend time with them. You have to converse with them. So that's what we need to be doing. Living a life that experiences the power of God. Paul says, I want you to know the power of the Spirit. And and this is is wonderful. When, When Jesus commissioned his disciples again at the beginning of Acts, it says, wait here till you receive power through the Holy Spirit. God has not called us to all these things and then says, hey, just get on with this. Here you are, here's this this amazing ideal. There's this, this fantastic high standard. Get on with it. He says, no, I will come and I will be with you and I will dwell in you. That song that we we sang earlier, Oh, that I may know the power of his resurrection, based on Ephesians 1. The resurrection power of God at work. God says, yes, I want you to know that, to be equipped because of it. Living a life that is joyful in God. Writing to the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord. And again I say, rejoice. Do you know where Paul was when he wrote that? He was in a Roman prison. But he says, rejoice, rejoice, and it ought to be seen in the reality of what we are. He concludes, living a life that is thankful. And he refers to the thankfulness that we should have as he looks at the reality that we've been delivered from darkness brought into the kingdom of God. We've been redeemed. We've been forgiven. My goodness, we ought to be thankful. Really thankful. Again, we should be thankful for the many blessings we experience today. Thankful that, that we can gather like this 
thankful that we're going back to a decent meal. <laughs> thankful when we have that meal. Thankful, warmth and shelter. When I hear about Mike and the others, uh, I, I thank God that I'm not spending my nights in a cardboard box on the street. <laughs> I'm thankful for that. We should be thankful for all that God has given to us. So these are the fruit of the gospel. This is what should happen when the gospel grows and is implanted in us. So, how's it going to impact us? What's going to be our involvement in the growth and fruitfulness? To be encouraging growth. We can do that in all kinds of ways. We did it this morning when Vanessa was telling us about Isaburu, to pray for Andy and Ireland for the work. Support in di different ways, become involved in different ways. We can be encouraging the growth of the gospel, encouraging it in our own situation here at Abbey as we look about how we can have a greater impact on the community around us. Encouraging it as we support one another in our witness at work, at home, and in our neighbourhood. So there are all kinds of ways in which God is calling us to encourage. Now notice I deliberately choose the word encourage. We cannot cause someone to accept Christ. That's the work the Spirit does. But we can do all kinds of things to encourage it. We can make the word known. We can demonstrate the reality of what it means. We can encourage in all kinds of ways. We can't make it happen, but we can encourage it. That's something which we have. And secondly, we should be nurturing fruitfulness. Nurturing it in our own lives, by our openness to the Spirit of God. It, it is the fruit of the Spirit that he desires to bring how often I ask myself, how often do I actually lay myself out openly and say to the Holy Spirit, do your work. How often am I willing to be opened to what God wants to do in my life? I, I've got all sorts of restrictions. I, I limit God. I say, I'd like you to work here, particularly on a Sunday morning if I'm preaching or something like that, but maybe there are other areas I'm not quite so anxious about. How open are we to the work of the Spirit to bring his fruit to bear in our lives? And how much, too, are we there to help and encourage and nurture it in other people? We thought again about Julia and those who work with the children, nurturing them. How do we do that with one another, to encourage one another to see these things develop? So let us rejoice in the growth of the gospel. The very fact that it reached me, reached you, something to be very thankful for. Let us pray for each other that the fruit may grow more and more, become greatly more evident amongst us individually and together as a fellowship of God's people. Let's pray. So, Lord, we, we just do give you thanks that you have not given up on your creation. We are so sorry for the mess we have made of it. 
the mess we have made of our own lives. And we thank you for your patience and your grace and for the amazing thing that you did in coming in Christ to bring redemption and forgiveness. And we pray, Lord, that that may be a reality for each one of us to accept what you have done. And we pray, Lord, that we may be open to the gracious work of your Spirit, that we may see that which you want of us in terms of our character and our being, to be conformed to the likeness of the Lord Jesus. Help us, Lord, to be open, we pray. And so we pray for one another, pray for those who have not been able to join with us. And we pray again for our community in which you have placed us here in Abbeydale. Ask, Lord, that you would work by your grace in us and through us for the extension of your kingdom and the glory of your name. Amen.